We're going to get in the Word of God here in a minute. If you want to get ready, you can go ahead and take your Bibles and open them to John chapter 20. We're going to be looking at that chapter in the Gospels. You know the Gospel stories, obviously, are the stories of the life of Jesus Christ, and each of them account for the crucifixion and then the resurrection. And so we're going to look at John's account of this event as we're going forward. Um, This holiday, this special celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I I think that this crowd, for the most part, everybody would agree, is certainly the singular most important thing to celebrate in all of human history. Uh, This is the day that we celebrate that Jesus Christ proved everything that the prophets said. It's the day when he actually, truly rose from the grave. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, conquering sin, conquering hell, conquering death, is not just the idea of Christians. It's not just one of the tenets of that Christian faith that some people have. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, he actually died on a cross, and he actually was buried for three days, and he actually came out of the grave, is an indisputable fact of history. And that's an important thing to remember. The life of Jesus Christ is so significant And I say this frequently, but I think it bears repeating, that all of human history marks time based on that event. So what we used to do when I was in school is we called it B.C., before Christ, and A.D., the Latin for in the year of our Lord. Now the politically cleansing system came through and said we can't have Jesus Christ associated with our calendar, so we call it B.C.E., before the Common Era, and C.E., the common era. Kids that are in school now don't even get B.C. and A.D. anymore, but we know what the date is today based on the fact that Jesus Christ came, God in human flesh, and did what only God in human flesh could possibly do. Live a sinless life, die on the cross for all of our sins, offering to us the free gift of eternal life, being killed according to the methods that the scriptures portrayed, crucified on a cross, died, buried, and rose again to conquer death and sin and hell forever and offers to each and every one of us the free gift of eternal life. This is a significant event. This is a big deal. And we are here today to celebrate that time. In fact, when I say it's a fact of history, just consider it this way. If legitimately it were possible to refute the validity of the actual crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, don't you know that the devil would have propagated that story so much through the world system and through the media that he controls such that everybody would have heard thousands of times over how that myth of the resurrection is purported by some of those weird people that call themselves Christians. But that's never really gotten legs out there because it's not true and even the devil can't refute it. Everybody knows that it's true. Oh, they've tried. Uh, Some of the theories that some people have put forth over the years is One of them is actually called the swoon theory. You ever heard of that? The swoon theory is the idea that in order to discount the fact that Jesus really rose from the grave and, and received life again, is the fact that he didn't actually die when he was on the cross. I mean, he was beaten so badly and thought they thought he was dead, but he actually just swooned like he fainted for a while. And then after they buried him, They put him in the tomb and they put the big stone over the tomb and they set Roman guards to make sure that nothing happened to it. He he woke up. And when he woke up, he, of course, being beaten to a bloody pulp and injured to the extent that he was injured, somehow figured his way to move that stone away and 
get past the Roman guards and disappeared off into the wilderness somewhere, probably just to die again later. Uh, that's one theory. Nobody really believes that. That's ridiculous. Uh, another one of the theories that's put forth, and this is actually people put, had put this forth, is the stolen body theory. You ever heard of that one? So the idea is just that the disciples, now we're talking the disciples. You know who that crowd is, right? Just commercial fishermen and tax collectors and average people. That they actually went up against these Roman guards and they went in and defeated them and got that stone rolled away and they stole the body so that everybody else could think that the scriptures were fulfilled. But that theory never got legs either because everybody knows that that didn't happen and there's no way that that ragtag group of average people could have overcome the force of the Roman military and have done such a deed. No, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is certainly an indisputable fact of history. And so I made a statement like this. An honest man, intellectually honest man, cannot dismiss the reality of the resurrection. He has to respond to it. An honest man cannot just dismiss it. You can't just say, well, that's, you know, that's your religion. No, this is a reality of history. So all that's left is for you to respond to it. And so the title I've given today's message for us to consider out of John chapter 20 is Responses to the Resurrection. How are you going to respond to the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's today's question. That's today's Bible study. That's what we're going to see in John chapter 20. Uh, and I want you to think about it. I mean, think about it, y'all. We are in the year 2018. That means we are 2,000 plus or minus however many exactly years since the event of this resurrection. And, I mean, if the scriptures that prophesied all those events of his first coming, death, burial, and resurrection were true, and they are, then the scriptures also point to a time when he's going to return again in judgment. He's not going to return again as the lowly lamb of God to be beaten and slaughtered. He's going to return as a Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And when he does that, he's going to come to judge all the unbelievers of this earth. And it's 2018. I mean, how much more time do we really think we have to eventually one day respond properly to the offer of salvation that he gives to us? Well, that's what I want us to consider today. So in John's version of the gospel account, in chapter 19, it's the story of the crucifixion and all the details that go with the actual crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 20, it's the story of the resurrection. And we're going to read all of the chapter eventually, little by little, as we go through this. But what we're going to see are three different groups of people that encounter the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And each of them has a different response. Now, why do you suppose God recorded this this way? Well, one reason is, is because that's the way it really was. That's what happened on that Sunday morning when they went to the tomb and found it empty. But could it be that he wants all of us to consider which of these three groups best represents us? I think that's what he wants us to consider today. So before we begin reading, let's just pray together, prepare our hearts to hear what the Lord has for us. Heavenly Father, we love you and we are so grateful that you are who you are, that you are the eternal all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-existing Lord of creation. You are the Lord of all lords, and you are the one final authority in all of life, and you have given life to us, and yet we blew it. We've sinned, and yet you figured out a way to solve that problem. You yourself came in the person of Jesus Christ. 
and you lived that sinless life and you died on that cross and you were buried and put in that tomb and you rose again this day that we celebrate and you offer to each of us that gift of eternal life. And Lord, as we look into your word in this chapter and as we look into the three different groups of people and the three different groups of categories of people that it might represent, may you speak to our hearts. May each of us find ourselves in this story so that we might give the proper response to the resurrection that you would seek. Lord, our life really doesn't have the meaning it needs to or could or should have without you in the middle of it. So speak to our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first group we're going to see, I'm going to call, this is the uh, part that is written to the distant followers. We'll call them the distant followers. And we're going to see that in the major portion of this chapter. Hang with me. I'm going to read 18 verses, the first 18 verses, okay? We'll kind of go through it, and we'll see what it's all about. So just follow along as I read, starting in verse number 1 of John chapter 20. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they, both, they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without at the, at the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself, and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Unto the distant followers, that's what I'm calling it. And what we're going to see is that this group is represented by Mary Magdalene. It's represented by Mary Magdalene. She represents those who receive some personal benefit from having Jesus around. Now, if we get into the story, what we're going to see is that while she has truly benefited from Jesus Christ being around her life, she really never committed to a personal relationship with him. You see, this is the group of people who they're interested in what God can do for them physically in their life. 
She came, and if you compare to other gospel accounts, there were actually other women that came with her, but here it's listed just as her, and so we'll just use her as the representative person. And uh, she comes to the tomb early on the first day of the week, Sunday morning, when it was still yet dark. And an interesting thing happened that morning because they came to the sepulcher, and they came to the sepulcher, the grave, to mourn, to basically to weep and to mourn this event that had happened. But when they got there, what was interesting is in verse number one, we see that that stone was rolled away. Now, we go past that piece of evidence very quickly and maybe don't spend time thinking about it. I just want to mention this thought for you today is that why was the stone rolled away? Was the stone rolled away so that Jesus could get out? Well, that's typically what we might think. I want to propose to you that's not why it was rolled away. It was not rolled away so Jesus could get out, as we'll see later in verse 19. It was rolled away so that the disciples could go in. That's why it was rolled away, so that they could see for themselves that he was no longer in there. Jesus, once he is risen, has no need to worry about stones or closed doors anymore. He can go wherever he wants to go, and we'll see that again in a minute. So she runs to the disciples. And she says, they've taken away the Lord. We don't know where they've laid him. And later on, she ultimately addresses him as my Lord, but here she addresses him as the Lord. And I think that's significant because that's the transition that needs to take place in her life. That's the transition that needs to take place in all of our lives. We need to go from seeing Jesus Christ as just the Lord to the point where we receive him as our Lord. So this is to the distant followers. Mary Magdalene is one, as it says in Luke chapter 8 and verse number 2, who has been healed of seven devils. We don't know exactly what her infirmities were. We don't really know what her problems were, but certainly she would have had difficulties. Probably physical ailments, probably sicknesses. Maybe they were some psychological issues. I don't know exactly what they were, but they are defined as being tormented by seven devils. And Jesus Christ delivered her from those devils. Her life cleaned up. Her life got straightened out. Her life got back online. And she knew that it was Jesus Christ who did it. So much so that Mary Magdalene, along with some of these other women, women followed Jesus Christ all the way on his path of suffering, all the way to the cross. Now, she stayed out at a distance. And from a distance, she watched that whole event of the crucifixion take place. She loved the Lord in her own way because the Lord had done much for her, a principle we see in Luke chapter 7 and verse 47. Speaking of another where it says, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. We know that principle is true in our life. If somebody's done a lot for you, you are very grateful. You love that person even more. If a person has maybe done something for you a little bit here or there, okay, you might appreciate it, but you probably don't have a deep felt love for that person. And that's what Jesus Christ is saying. So Mary had real experiences. It's not that she didn't have real experiences. In fact, I think that it's fair for us to say, isn't it awesome when God does stuff for us? I mean, he's a good God, is he not? I mean, he provides for us a lot of wonderful opportunities that, quite frankly, we don't always give him the credit for. He gives us our health. He gives us our strength. He puts us in families. He puts people around us that love us. He gives us intelligence. 
and the ability to be able to work and to learn and to develop a craft and, and a life and a purpose and a career and all the things that we do. Uh, he blesses us in unimaginable ways. And we enjoy that. And so, but now in this story, what we see is this man that had done so much for her and for so many, well, he's now gone. That the hope that more good things happening in our lives, well, that hope is dead. That hope is gone. And so there's a panic. She's like, oh my goodness, and now, now he's gone. Somebody stole him away. What, where is he? In other words, Jesus is not where we left him. We left him here, and he's not, he's not where he's supposed to be. So you know what their response is? The response of such a group is, and this sounds crazy, they lost their Lord. Can you imagine? We lost Jesus. What happened? Do you remember the story back in Luke chapter 2 where Joseph and Mary and young Jesus were in Jerusalem for the feast and at the end of that time they're going back home and they're traveling for about a day's journey. A whole pack of people are leaving to go back to where they're from and as they're journeying along the way, I don't know exactly how you know, their parenting worked out back then, but they had been traveling about a day and they noticed, hey, wait a minute, where's Jesus? Anybody seen Jesus? Like, he was like a 12-year-old boy and they didn't check to see if he was with them. They go all the way back and they find him in the temple and he's debating the law of God with the Pharisees. I mean, it's just a, it's a cool story. But the interesting thing is, I think as a parent, Man, these guys, they lost the Lord. <laughs> and that's what Mary says. We've lost it. We don't know where he's at. He's not where he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be here and he's not here. We don't even know where he is. Now you think, that is funny. Yeah, how, dumb, how dumb Mary is. Well, I want you to consider this. Have you ever thought, hey, where's the Lord when I need him? Have you ever had things happen where, you know, the Lord's bailed you out a lot of times in the past and something tough is going on in your life and you're calling out to the Lord to come to your rescue and for whatever reason things aren't clicking like you think they should and, and you think, hey, wait a minute, what happened to the Lord? You know, he's not where he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be right here taking care of me. He's supposed to be continuing to provide all these things that I need. I've kind of grown used to it. But he's not here where I left him. See, we kind of fall into that category. It's easy for people to look to the Lord for what they can get. And when they don't get what they want, or they don't get what they expect, and they don't get it when they want it, sometimes they might respond acting like, well, God is gone. He's just gone. Where is he anyway? You know what the real problem is? Those people really don't have a real personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we know that that's true because if you glance down in verses 14 and 15 in this story, Jesus shows up behind her and he speaks to her and she doesn't even recognize who it is. 
I mean, Jesus Christ is standing behind her after he has risen from the grave. And in verse 15, she thinks, <laughs> check this out, she thinks he's the gardener. In other words, she thinks he's the dude who takes care of the grounds out at the cemetery. That's who she thinks he is. Just some unknown man that shows up. Well, that tells us some things, right? I mean, on one hand, it tells us that, well, we'll see in just a second, I'll show you, that Jesus Christ in this state did not yet have a glorified body. We'll see that in a minute. But she didn't know him. She didn't recognize him. I wonder why that is. I wonder why she didn't know him that well. And you know what I think the answer is? I think it's because she didn't take the time to really get to know him through the scriptures. You see, even at that time, they had all of the Old Testament scriptures. They had all the Old Testament prophecies. They had the word of God revealed. They spent years walking with Jesus Christ on this earth. He was teaching them the truths of the prophecies. He was revealing to them his fulfillment of all of those things. Do you remember the story back in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus is with his disciples and he begins to reveal to his disciples that, hey, there's coming a time where the Son of Man is going to have to go to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer many, many things and he's going to be judged by the elders and by the chief priests and ultimately he's going to be crucified and he's going to rise again on the third day. He revealed all of those things at least a year or two prior to his disciples. That's the story where Simon Peter replies and he says, Lord, may it never be. And Jesus turns to Simon and he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Because Satan doesn't want Jesus to fulfill the scriptures, right? And it was that spirit that was influencing Peter with what we might consider good intentions to try and stop Jesus from ultimately fulfilling what he said he had to fulfill. The point being is, these disciples had prior opportunities of understanding who he really is through the scriptures. So a couple of other men that Jesus meets after his resurrection is recorded in Luke 24, verses 25 and 26. It says this, Then he said unto them, O fools! And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Jesus walks with these two men on the road to Emmaus. And he's talking with them about what's been going on. They didn't recognize that it was Jesus. And he says, you would recognize me if you had a relationship with me through the scriptures. Through the scriptures. And so when he first speaks to Mary, she didn't recognize him. And sometimes that happens to us, doesn't it? Sometimes God tries to speak to us. He, he tries to reveal his truth to us through his word. And sometimes it takes us a while. Sometimes we hear it, but we don't really hear it. And we don't really know him because we're not really paying attention to the level that he intends for us to pay attention. Until verse 16. And in verse 16, he speaks directly to her. And he says, he calls her by name, Mary. And for some reason, exactly how it played out and why, I don't know. But when he said her name, it clicked. When he spoke and addressed her personally and directly, it made a difference. By the way, this is a common practice that God does all through the scriptures. 
He addresses Abraham by name. He addresses Moses by name. He addresses Samuel by name. He addresses Jacob by name. He addressed Martha by name. He addressed Saul, who then became the Apostle Paul, by name. He calls people by their name, so much so that in John chapter 10 and verse number 3, Jesus Christ talks about a day when we're going to have a rapture of the church, when each and every believer will be called out of this world in an instant in the twinkling of an eye, and you will be called by name. He'll call your name, and you're out to stand before him in glory. You know what the question that we need to consider today in this category of people is? Can you hear Jesus speaking directly to you yet? You see, you may have been like Mary. You may have been around the crowd. You may have been a huge benefactor of blessings. Maybe you're just in a Christian family and Christian families have God's blessings on those families. But you as an individual, for whatever reason, maybe never really exercised your own faith in the revelation of God through the Scriptures. And although you've been a benefactor, yet you've never actually heard the Word of God speak to you. As though He's using your first name. Because let me tell you something. When that happens... And by the way, it depends on you. He's trying. When you hear that voice, you'll respond. Just like Mary responded. Master. Lord. She understood who he was. That's what he's trying to do. I don't know what it is you're dealing with. I don't know the situations of your life. I don't know who you are and what God's trying to do in your heart and in your life. But if you find yourself in this category of people, You've been, you're not against the Lord. You're a believer in God. You're a believer in the facts of the crucifixion and resurrection. But for some reason, you've just been kind of at an arm's length. You've just kind of been distant. You kind of like just to be on the outskirts and, and just kind of watch, and, and that, that's your prerogative to do. Maybe yet you've not heard him speak to you. And today may be that day. Today's the day he wants it to happen, right? He wants this to be a part of your life. So the question for all of us to consider, and certainly all of us have to consider this at some point in our lives, do you really know Jesus? Do you really know him? Is he a personal friend, savior in your life? Or do you just know him for what you can benefit? I mean, that's a good question for everybody. The day that your life starts getting hard, as you consider your continued continued following of the Lord? Well, some people just check out. I'm sorry, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for these difficulties. I'm out. They have the idea like, well, Lord, I mean, thanks for all the stuff you've done so far, but what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately? There's no personal relationship. There's no personal commitment that supersedes all the circumstances. So what I want you to consider if you might find yourself in this category is, would you be willing to surrender your life to begin your personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Because whether you recognize it or not, let me, can I just help you today? I don't even have to know you personally. That's what you really want. It really is. Whether you even recognize it or not, that's what you really want. Why do you say that? 
I say that because I know that's the only answer that will check all the boxes that you think you're really searching after in your life. What do you want in your life anyway? You want peace? Everybody wants peace in their life. Well, Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. You want joy in your life? Well, it's only going to come from the peace that passes all understanding in your life regardless of the circumstances. You want security in your life? You think there's a more secure future for you than to be eternally secure that regardless of what happens in this life, you have a guaranteed home in heaven? Look, there's no guarantees in this life. This life is not fair. But whatever it is you're seeking after, men seek after careers, they seek after money, they seek after power, they seek after fame, they seek after all these other things that truly are just a means to some status of life that they feel, some level of love and joy and happiness and contentment and commitment and purpose. Well, all those things come in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Whether you recognize it or not, that is what you really want. I'm here to help you. So the way that you can understand that is just by understanding the simple gospel. Can I walk you through it really quickly? In Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, the Bible makes a very definitive statement. It says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All means all. That includes me. It includes you. It includes your saintly grandmother. It includes the nicest person you've ever met in your life. It includes every religious leader you've ever thought about talking about. It includes every single human being who has ever breathed God's free air. The only person who's never sinned is the God-man, and that's Jesus Christ. That's why he's the only one who possibly could pay the penalty that we owe. And the, the wages, it says in Romans 6.23, for the sin that we have committed is death. A wage is what you earn based on what you've done. You have a job, you earn a wage. You don't have to beg for it, you've earned it. What we have done as human beings is sin. All have sinned. All of us. We've all lied. We've all done things we shouldn't have done. And the wages of that sin is death. Well, it's not just physical death. Because the Bible actually talks about two kinds of deaths. It talks about a first death, which is physical. We all know that happens. Human life, physical life, has a cycle. You're born, you grow, you get to a point, you get old, you die. It happens. We're used to it. Spiritual life also has spiritual death. And that's spiritual separation from God in eternity in a place called hell. It's called the second death in Revelation 21, and it's characterized by a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. If the story were to stop now, it's very bad news. All have sinned. All have earned the wage. The wage is death, and the death, cash equivalent spiritually, is the second death, which is separation from God in a place called hell. All human beings are born into a life set on a course for hell. But God made a way so that we don't have to have that happen. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. This is the record that God has given unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who has not the Son of God has not the life. And so literally, he tells us this is the record. If I take these notes that I have and I stick them in my Bible, and I were to say, this is the record God has given to us eternal life. Let's just say these notes represent eternal life. And this life is in his son. Let's say my Bible represents the son, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is in the son. If you have the son, you also have the life. If you don't have the son, you don't have the life. I made a way for you, God says. I've provided a way that you can have eternal life. You're on the wrong path. You're stuck. You're a sinner. And the wages of sin is death. And there's no getting off that unless... 
you receive the free gift of eternal life. If we went back to Romans 6.23, but the free gift of eternal life is, uh, is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So God loved us. And that's what we see in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 8, right? God commendeth his love toward us. He demonstrated his love. He proved his love. And that while we were yet sinners, and we did not deserve it, Jesus Christ came and he died for us. He died to pay the price that we could not possibly pay. He did that because of his love. So if you will receive the Son, you will receive eternal life. If you reject the Son, you will reject eternal life. You say, great, how do I do that? Well, in John chapter 1 and verse number 12, he says very clearly that to as many as received him, the Lord Jesus, to them gave he power to become sons of God. Well, how do I do that? I mean, I don't really know how to do that. I didn't know how to do that when it was first presented to me as a college student. I didn't understand it. I wasn't unintelligent. I just had never been explained how it works until I came to understand this story in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. You receive him by faith. It says that if you, in verses 9 and 10 of Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that means you actually say, you recognize that Jesus Christ is the one and only Lord. There is no other. You confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And you believe in your heart. Easter, you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. And you'll be saved. And you say, well, man, I, I think I get it. You go down a couple of verses in Romans 10 to verse 13, and Jesus Christ is trying to speak to you Literally, by f putting your name in the blank, for whosoever, put your name in the blank, shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Do you realize that right now where you sit, there's no magic prayer. God is a living, breathing God. He is alive and well and observant of everything we do all the time. If you in your heart would identify with Mary, if you in your heart would identify as a distant follower, You've received many blessings from the Lord, but you've been at an arm's length. You've never really entered into a personal relationship, and you want to do that today. Right now, right where you sit, you could just ask the Lord to save you, to forgive you of your sins, confess with your mouth that He is the Lord and that He will be your Lord. You will receive Him into your heart and your life as your personal Savior, enter into a relationship with Him, believing that He is the one who died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again. And as a result, you then, by faith in his written word, enter into this personal relationship with him. Distant followers had the response, they, they lost Jesus. <laughs> He's telling you, hey, woo, here I am. Just decide. Man, I want so desperately. It's that eternal life is in him thing. It's like God is saying, please, please take this. Please receive it. I've prepared it for you. Will you receive it for yourself? No, thanks. That's what some people say. But an honest man can't just dismiss it. He has to respond. He has to respond. Well, let's look at the next group. The next group we're going to call the faithful followers. Okay? The faithful followers. We're going to start in verse 19, and we'll go down to verse 23. 
Then the same day at evening, so this is Sunday evening now, about 12 hours later or whatever, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst. That's what I told you before. He, he didn't need the stone to be rolled away to get out. He needed the stone to be rolled away so that the others could get in and see what was going on. The doors were all shut. They're locked in. They're, they're, they're worried. They're you know, trying to protect themselves. And Jesus, poof, appears in the midst, okay? Where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. So what we have here are the faithful followers, and they are represented by primarily the 11 disciples. There were 12. Judas has already kind of taken his route now, and he's out, right? So there's only 11 faithful disciples. Uh, they represent the group that faithfully followed him from the time that they met him. Praise God for these people. Many of you, I'm sure, are in this category. The story goes on. It's Sunday evening. The disciples are gathered in a room. They're afraid because the Jewish conspiracy against Jesus Christ had him crucified. They're now fully aware that the tomb is empty. And they're trying to figure out what are they going to do. What are they doing in this room? Well, we don't really know. Are they praying? Are they planning what they're going to do next? But they have already received the report, not just from Mary, but Peter and John, who is the disciple that Jesus loved, also goes back and they give the report. Man, he's risen. And so they're locked in this room and they're trying to figure it out. And the miracle then appears. Jesus Christ, poof, in their midst, right? He didn't knock on the door. He didn't have to. He walked through it, which tells us that now he has a glorified body. Uh, remember back with Mary when she saw him, he says, hey, 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 don't touch me because I haven't yet ascended to my father. Now it's just maybe 12 hours later, he's in the room with the disciples and if you make a cross-reference to Luke 24, 39, and we'll see it also a little bit later in this story, that Jesus, when he walks in and he shows them the marks of the crucifixion, the holes in his hands and his side. He invites them in Luke's account, touch me, come touch it, check it out, it's me. So something happened in those 12 hours between Mary, don't touch me, I haven't yet ascended to my father. Hey, come check it out, touch me. Back then he probably didn't have a glorified body, she didn't recognize him as anybody different than maybe the gardener. Here he walked through the wall and just showed up in their midst and said, touch me. What happened in between those times? Well, between those times, obviously, Jesus Christ ascended to the Father. And he presented the blood on the altar and the mercy seat and it cleansed away all the sins for all mankind. He receives his glorified appearance and he travels, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of light years north of Alpha Draconis up into the third heaven in the very presence of God himself and returns all the way back down to earth and he's with the disciples and he's like, yeah, touch me all you want now. Uh, that's a miracle, y'all. <laughs> that's a miracle. Not the stuff people are saying are miracles today. That's a real one. 
So Jesus shows up and he makes it clear. This is who I am. Well, they don't have any problem believing it, right? The message he gives them, he knows they're afraid. So he says, peace be unto you. Don't be afraid. Uh, Don't be afraid of the Jews. Uh, Don't be afraid of me, thinking I'm a ghost or something like that. Uh, Don't be afraid. And it says the disciples were glad when they saw him. They're like, all right, Jesus is here. They recognized who he was right away. They understood it all right away. So what's the message that Jesus has for faithful followers? What is the message that Jesus has to people who have faithfully walked with him through thick and thin? Listen, these last few days for those brothers has not been easy. What's the message Jesus has for that group after the resurrection? He says, basically, the Great Commission. As the Father hath sent me, so send I you. You say, well, how has the Father sent Jesus Christ? Well, he's not referring to going and dying on a cross for the sins of mankind. We couldn't possibly do that if we wanted to. He's talking about the mission that was given to Jesus Christ as recorded in John chapter 17, where Jesus tells the Father that I've done all the work, I've finished the work that you gave me to do, and the context is clearly making disciples and training them to carry on the work for the rest of time. The the work that God the Father gave God the Son to do was to make disciples. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Matthew 28, Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. This is John's version of the Great Commission. The message to faithful followers, the response he's looking for for the resurrection is get involved in the mission. Go into all the world. You know what the response is, the way I've framed it in this message today? They lost, not the Lord, they lost their lives. They lost their own lives. They lost their old lives. They lost their own old desires, ambitions, thoughts for themselves and their retirement or whatever it is they might have had on their minds. They gave away their old lives because they got something better. They found their purpose. They found a reason to live that's greater than just themselves. They're now ready and willing to go to the world. These are the people that have to just thrill the Lord's heart. These are the people Jesus can count on. These are the people through whom he will do his greatest work. These are the ones that will continue to walk with the Lord Jesus, even after he's ascended to the Father and no longer with us physically on this earth. But in order for them to really pull this off, there's a couple of things that they're going to need. And we're going to get into a couple of verses, 22 and 23, that some people think these are tricky verses. I mean, these are kind of, these are tough to figure out. I mean, what's, what are these things really all about? Well, let me just say this in verse 22. The first thing that they need to carry out this mission is the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. That's what they need. Because he says in verse 22, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, we don't have the time to get into all the details of this today, but let me just make it real clear for you. This is not... You hear the word not? What is called the baptism of the Holy Ghost. 
that would have been referred to in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11 with John the Baptist. Uh, this is not that, okay? Uh, this is not the baptism of the Holy Ghost that you would see if you looked in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 where it says, by one spirit we are all baptized into one body. The baptism, the literal immersion of taking your life and immersing it into this new entity called the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit of God. That's not what's going on here. There's no reference to the fact that that's what's going on here. That event, that baptism of the Holy Ghost, that thing that places you into the body, the, the eternally indwelling Spirit of God in the life of every believer, never to leave again, the earnest of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, that occurs in Acts chapter 2. That's a couple of pages to the right. It hasn't happened yet. So what's going on here is nothing more than what would have gone on throughout the entire Old Testament. God gives His Holy Spirit to His servants to carry out His work. And so they receive the Holy Spirit for the ability, the enabling of carrying out the work of the Lord. And that's what he has done. This is not the complete fulfillment of what John promised in, or Jesus promised in John 14, <coughs> excuse me, verses 16 and 17, where Jesus said, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him. For he dwelleth with you now, and he shall be in you. Well, that's ultimately going to be fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. But they need the empowering of the Holy Spirit if they're going to pull this off for sure. And the next thing they need in order to be able to pull this off is they need a worldwide mission. They need a purpose for living. And that's verse 23. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Now let me just clear off a space and tell you that this is one of the most abused verses in all of the New Testament by the Roman Catholic Church to justify an apostolic succession through the priesthood of for the ability of men to forgive sins. Together with Matthew chapter 16 verses 18 and 19 and John chapter 20 and verse 23, they have put together this doctrine that is not biblically defensible. Matthew chapter 16 was that story I was telling you about with Jesus and Peter and the disciples, and he's about to reveal all what's going to go on. And this is where he says to the disciples, hey, who do men say that I am? And they throw out a couple of suggestions, and Peter says, hey, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in verse 18 of Matthew 16, I say also unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so this large, major world religious system has come together and determined this doctrine that they say that there is one man, he's called the Pope, and he's got the ability to speak, as they say, ex cathedra, in other words, from the throne. And in those areas where he speaks ex cathedra, he speaks infallibly, and whatever he says is what it is. And that is absolutely the way it's going to be. And uh, that can't be the case, and we're going to see that in just a second. That's certainly not true. Because a lot of the things, if you just study history, and history is an amazing thing, reveals to us that a lot of the things the popes have said, ex cathedra, well, they contradict Scripture. And they're just not accurate. 
Uh, recently, we just heard a story, I actually haven't confirmed whether it's true or not, that the current Pope just came out and said, hey, good news, there's no hell. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, that's a handy doctrine for people who are going there. But uh, <laughs> that doesn't mean it's true, right? I mean, the scriptures are very clear about this place called hell. It really exists. I don't care what anybody says about it. The Lord said what he said about it. So the idea that you can twist these things into some kind of a doctrine is just not accurate. What I'm trying to say today is, not to bash anybody, I'm trying to reveal to you the understanding of what Jesus Christ was doing with his faithful disciples at a time, and he gave us a couple of verses of Scripture that if you don't study a little bit, maybe you might get tripped up. I don't want you to get tripped up. I'm trying to help you. So this is a false interpretation that this church uses, the Roman Catholic Church. How do I know that? Well, I know it. One reason is because this audience, again, you compare the other gospel accounts, it was not just the 11 apostles. Because that's why I said in the beginning, the, the, the representation is primarily the 11. The truth of the matter is, there was a whole bunch of other disciples in this room. In other words, what that means is, <coughs> excuse me, the, the audience for this blessing, the retaining and remitting of sins, whatever that is, was not just apostolic only. There's a whole bunch of guys in there. There's a whole bunch of guys in there that got this word, right? In fact, Paul also had the same power. And with Paul's understanding, we're going to start to get into understanding what it really does mean. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 10, where Paul says to the church, To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. So what is this remitting and retaining of sins thing really all about? Well, really all it is is it's the preaching of the message of the forgiveness of sins through faith in the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. This sins remitted is nothing more than what we would see, for example, in Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39, where it says, Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man... Jesus Christ is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye cannot be justified by the law of Moses. So when you preach the gospel like I have to you today and people respond to that gospel, you are offering to them the forgiveness of sins. Is it you that offers forgiveness of sins? Are you really? Well, yes, you're offering it, but you're not forgiving sins. That's ridiculous. And the retaining of sins is nothing more than offering the gift and people saying, no thanks. Well, okay, well, it's on you then. Well, I can declare that on the authority of what God has done and what God does do. Not because I have any special power to do it. You don't need to come and sit in a phone booth with me and tell me what you've done wrong. It doesn't have anything to do with that. What you need to do is you need to respond to the risen Lord. That's what you need to do. But we have a mission, and our mission is to be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit of God and to take that message to the world so that they can know about it too. Because there was a day in your lives too when you didn't know about it and somebody brought it to you. And aren't you thankful for that person? Well, that's what we want to do for them as well. So the rejection might be uh, understood continuing in that passage in Acts chapter 13, verses 40 and 41. But every Christian has this power every time they preach the gospel. Because ask yourself this simple question. Who actually remits or retains sins anyway? Well, only God does. 
And by the way, everybody knew that. Even lost people knew that back in that day. Mark chapter 2 and verse number 7. The Pharisees, why doth this man thus speak blasphemies after he just forgave sin? Who can forgive sins but God only? They knew that. Only God is the one that can forgive your sins. You don't need to tell them to me. Listen, I got enough problems. I don't need to hear about your sins. <laughs> tell them to the Lord. He's the only one that needs to deal with them. So this for sure is the best reaction to the resurrection, amen? Go and tell the world that the forgiveness of their sins is available. The question is, will you make that commitment? They lost their lives for the gospel's sake. Will you do that? Mark chapter 8 and verse 35. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the gospels, the same shall save it. Listen, y'all. You've known the Lord for a long time. Can I just say the Lord's cry to you is, enough of this playing church thing. Let's get busy. Let's get serious about this thing. I mean, it's 2018. Let's surrender our hearts and our lives. Let's be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Let's get on board with the purpose of the mission of Jesus Christ. That's his message to you, faithful follower. Get on board with the mission. Lastly, and this won't take long, to the unfaithful followers is our last category of people, verses 24 to 29. Represented by Thomas. Thomas one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. That was, that was bad. The other disciples therefore saith unto him, We've seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I'll not believe. And after eight days again the disciples were within, Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst. He does a repeat performance and said, Peace be unto you. And then Jesus turns. He saith directly to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. Be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Notice, blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. So here we have Thomas He's the representation of these unfaithful followers. He represents those that, well, they never really got it. They, they just never really clicked with them. Now, I'm not saying he's an unbeliever. He was one of the 12. He hung around the disciples a lot. But Thomas is the guy we read about in John chapter 11 where Jesus goes to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he's got the disciples with him. And he's like, hey, we got to go, you know, wake him up from his sleep. And they're like, ah, oh, if he's sleeping, let him sleep. And he's like, no, y'all, seriously, you're not getting this. He's dead. And Thomas is like, all right, let's go die with him. And that was Thomas. <laughs> you know, you can just see the Lord doing this. <laughs> Seriously, Thomas, come on. Thomas is the guy in John chapter 14 where Jesus is doing the deal, you know, in my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you, and I go to prepare a place for you. You know the way. Thomas interjects, wait a minute, wait a minute. We don't know the way. We don't know the way. Jesus, you know, texting SMH. <laughs> Older people, that means shaking my head. <laughs> Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Oh, yeah, okay. That's Thomas. 
So Thomas is hanging around, man. I mean, he's got the right friends. He's in the right places, right? He's been faithful. But I don't exactly know what happened. We don't really know what happened, but somehow he got preoccupied. Thomas somehow, I don't know, he skipped church that Sunday. <laughs> Thomas wasn't with the brethren. And when he skipped church that day, wouldn't you know it, that day the Lord showed up and did something really cool. <laughs> wouldn't you know it? I mean, it might have been sunny. He might have gone fishing. I don't know. He's like, ah, it's just one Sunday. I mean, it's been winter a long time. The weather's breaking. I mean, the sun's shining. I'm out, man. Thomas skipped a day. And man, did he miss out. He missed out. And you know what, y'all, seriously, can I say in love that nobody's legalistic about you have to show up every time the doors open in a church. Things happen in our lives. We have to be places. I understand. But some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're not committed and faithful to be together with the family of God when they get together, you're going to miss out on stuff. You're going to miss out on stuff. You run the risk of missing some amazing revelation from God. But God is so awesome. He's so kind. He's so helpful. He makes, well, first off, he makes Thomas wait eight days. He's like, okay, man, just kind of think about it for a while. Just think about it. And eight happens to be in the Bible, the number of new beginnings. And he gives Thomas a second chance. God is good. And he, and he just does the repeat performance, the exact same scenario. They're in there with the doors locked and they're praying or whatever. And Jesus, poof, he does the whole thing, the exact same words, peace be unto you. Immediately goes to Thomas and he's like, I know what you were thinking, dude. Just do it. Just come on. Just stick your finger in there. Go ahead. And he's like, wow, you are the Lord. Okay. And he's like, good. Okay, you got that over with. Now you believe. Way to go. You know what would be really cool, Thomas? If people didn't need to have to do that. You know what would be really awesome? If you just believe me without having to see and to touch and all that stuff. Wouldn't that be great? So, you know what the response of this crowd is? Kind of the marginally faithful followers. They lost their faith. They lost their ability to just believe God because of what he said. And to do what he said because he said it and without any other proof. He said, if I don't see it, if I don't touch it, I ain't believing. He might have been from Missouri. I don't know. You got to show me. I'm not believing it. Okay, well, God is good and he did what he did, but there's no guarantee he's going to do that for all of us all the time. He gave us his word. 2 Corinthians 5 says we walk by faith, not by sight. Those are mutually exclusive, right? So the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, well, that's a fact. It's a fact. You've never seen it personally, right? But it's recorded, and God wants you to respond. Just believing his word. That's what he wants you to do. If you're in that category of people, will you just surrender to believe what he says in his word and get on board with the faithful? That's what he wants you to do. I've got one question for you and we're done. What will your response to the resurrection be today? Maybe you need to receive him as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you just need to get on board with the mission. Maybe you just need to decide you need to get back on track. For some reason, you've kind of let it slip. But what he's interested in is you believing what he says. Let's finish the last two verses of this chapter. 
And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. This book is all you need to be able to believe that the accuracy of the historical events that happened are true. They're true because he said they're true. And if you'll exercise your faith in the truth of his word, that's all you need. You please him and he will act in your life. Those of you who know the scriptures know there's a story in Luke chapter 16 where there's a rich man and there's Lazarus and they both die. And the rich man ends up in hell and Lazarus ends up in a place called Abraham's bosom. And the rich man is tormented in the flames and he says, man, just dip your finger in water and touch it to my tongue that I may be soothed a little in these flames of torment. And this is not a parable in the Bible because it doesn't say it's a parable. It's a literal story. And the rich man then says, Lord, let Lazarus be resurrected and go and tell my family about this place so that they can believe and that they don't have to end up in this terrible place that I end up in. And you know what the Lord's response to the rich man was when he said, let Lazarus go save my family so they don't have to get in this situation? In verse 31 he said this, and he said unto them, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. Your family has all they need, and you, sir, you, ma'am, have all you need with the prophecies. Even if somebody, have you ever shared the gospel with somebody and they said, well, whatever. If I saw somebody rise from the dead, well, then I'd believe it. No, according to the scriptures, you wouldn't believe it. That's just your excuse. At the end of the day, God has given you all you need in his word. And I think he's given you a fair explanation today of what he expects from you. And the issue for you is just to respond to that today. So let's bow our heads in prayer and let's just respond to that. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to ask you one question and we'll be done in a second. Nobody's looking around. I don't want anybody to be embarrassed. But if you're here today and you're not 100% sure that if your life were to end, you'd have a home in heaven. But you would like to. You would like to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and enter into that relationship with him. If that is you today, I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to bother you. Nobody's going to come to you. Nobody's going to embarrass you. I just want to pray for you. If you would just raise your hand where you're at and hold it up and then put it back down again. I just want to pray for you. There's some people on that side of the auditorium. Anybody upstairs? Anybody downstairs? Just raise your hand. I'm not sure I'm saved, but I want to be. Just raise up your hand. I see it. Just take it back down again. This is really between you and the Lord. I just want to pray with intelligence. Anybody else? Just hold up your hand. Put it back down. That's for me. Lord Jesus, I pray for these who have responded to you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that in their own heart, and their own words, they would just cry out to you. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've blown it. There's no question about that. And I understand that the wages of sin are death. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come and forgive me of my sins right now. I believe that you are the Lord of all lords. I believe that you are the God of all creation, and you are the only one who possibly could take away my sins because you didn't have any. So, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart and my life and give me the free gift of eternal life. And I surrender my entire life to you today to make of it what you will. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we desire for you to be honored and glorified in all of these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.